So what are our, uh, what are, what are our four uh, healings? We've got the, shout them out. What are the four healings? That's a silly question. That's, a, that's the teacher in me. We all know the four healings. So we've got the, the uh, ruler's daughter. She's, she, the ruler is identified in the other gospels as, as Jairus, but in Matthew, he's just called a ruler. We've got the woman with the discharge of blood. We've got the two blind men, and then we've got the demon-possessed man who's mute. Now, did anyone, does anyone, can anyone make a stab at the, the thing that the, these four groups have in common? What did they all do that was the same? Spread the news? They did, actually, they did. That's not what I'm looking for, though. Good answer, but not the right answer. It is a right answer. Sorry, say it again. Yes, they all came to Jesus. They all came to Jesus with their need. They all asked him, and they all had faith. They all came from a position of faith. They wouldn't have come to Jesus if they didn't believe he could, he could do nothing for them. So we've got a theme of faith in these four healings. They believed that Jesus could heal them or heal their loved one. They had faith that Jesus was able to make them better. I mean, radically so, miraculously slow. So, raise people from the dead. We've got the ruler. The ruler said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. That is faith. Then you've got the woman who had uh, suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. She said, this is her speaking to herself. She thought, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Then you have the two blind men um, shouting after Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus says to them, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they reply, yes, Lord. And finally, the demon-oppressed man. Now, he's, he's oppressed by a demon. He's mute, but he had someone, and it doesn't tell us who, someone who brought him to Jesus, someone who had the faith to bring this man to Jesus for healing. So he healed each of these people because they came to him asking for help, and they had faith. In fact, Jesus talks about faith as, as being the reason why they're healed. He says to the woman who had the discharge of blood, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. So faith is the common factor here. In fact, to jump to a different gospel in, in uh, chapter six of Mark, when Jesus is back in his hometown in Nazareth, it says that their lack of faith stops him from performing miracles, which shocked me when I read it. Mark, Mark chapter six their lack of faith stops him from performing miracles. It says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So what's, what's the relationship then between faith and healing? Does it mean that all we need is enough faith to have God act? Is our faith the, the determining factor in whether God acts or not? If it does, then the equation looks like this, 100% belief, plus prayer equals miracle. 100% belief plus prayer equals miracle. Well, maybe there's alarm bells ringing in your head right now, and for good reason, because if we believe that God acting relies just on our faith, then the burden of God acting rests on our shoulders. The burden of God intervening miraculously rests on us and rests on how fervently we can convince ourselves to believe that he's going to act. And on the other hand, if we don't believe enough, then he won't act. He won't intervene miraculously. And that's not true. Faith is not a mystical force 
that uh, can charge up God's power and cause him to act. It isn't, it isn't some sort of fuel that powers the motor of God intervening miraculously in this world. And it certainly isn't wishful thinking. When the facts are shaky, we go out on a limb and believe something without proper evidence. This is a really good definition of faith I came across in a, in a commentary on Matthew. Faith is an attitude of trust towards an object that allows that object to work on our behalf. Faith is an attitude of trust towards an object that allows that object to work on our behalf. So let's take a plane for an example. We trust planes. We get on planes often, which is crazy. Let's take, for example, a Boeing 747. I looked up some uh, facts about it. A Boeing 747 is a 183,500 kilogram tin can with wings strapped on. And the plan is to attach some jet engines to it, start them up, burn four liters of fuel a second, and send that 200,000 kilogram tin can hurtling down a runway at 184 miles an hour and expect it to fly. And it does. It's miraculous. It flies up into the sky safely, and we think nothing of it because we have an attitude of trust towards the plane, which allows it to work on our behalf. It flies us around the world. It takes us to places we could have never dreamed of visiting, and it takes us there in a few hours. But if we don't have faith in the plane, if there's no attitude of trust towards the plane, it can't work on our behalf. And it can't work on our behalf because if you don't trust the plane, you're not going to get on the plane. And if you don't get on the plane, you're not going anywhere. So we need to get on the plane for use of this metaphor. We need to have an attitude of trust towards God that allows God to work on our behalf. So let's think back to our story and let's uh, think back to Jesus. Jesus wasn't limited in any way by people's lack of faith but he wasn't about to force himself into their lives and work powerfully and miraculously when they didn't believe he could or should. He wanted them to ask him. He wanted them to believe that he could. But the people of his own hometown didn't trust him. On the other hand, in our passage, we've got these two blind men in verses 27 to 31. They certainly show their need for Jesus. They're literally following him down the street shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. There's some determined, unashamed men. They probably caused quite a scene. The only time I've ever been shouted at walking down the street was by some drunk people. That's what comes to mind. And these guys, you can imagine the, the, the scene, they're following Jesus, shouting after him because they knew that he could heal them. They knew who they had faith in. And so Jesus waits until they follow him into a house, probably because he wants to keep the healing private. Um, as it says in the story, he doesn't want people to know. They come into the house and he asks them, do you believe I'm able to do this? Notice that he doesn't ask them, do you believe I'm willing to do this? He doesn't ask them to presume his will. He doesn't ask them to presume what he wants. He asks, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And in our metaphor, they get on the plane. They say, yes, Lord. And so he touches their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you, and their eyes are opened. It's the same with the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She believed that she had to physically touch Jesus, touch his garment. Now, that's imperfect theology, but Jesus accepted that as an act of faith. 
And so, as someone unclean, as an outcast in her society, she braves the crowds, she works her way through, and she touches Jesus. And he turns, and he sees her and says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Instantly, the woman is made well. Jesus saw in the woman's actions an attitude of trust in him, in his power to heal her. She got on the plane, and in his mercy, he healed her. She believed that he could heal her, and he chose to. It's worth pointing out here that we know God doesn't always heal. He doesn't always act when we would like him to or in the way that we think he should. In fact, sometimes our faith can be met with what seems like disaster. Hebrews 11 is the great by faith chapter. It talks about all of the heroes of faith, people who by faith achieved amazing things. But at the end of the passage, after listing all of these heroes of faith, in Hebrews 11 it says this, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So these people, they didn't receive what was promised, despite their faith. It's not the consequence of our faith in God that measures its effectiveness. For these people, and for all, almost all of Jesus' disciples, the immediate consequence of their faith was a brutal death. But faith in God is an attitude of trust that allows him to work on our behalf. It's trust that he's in control. It's trust that he's taking us where he means us to be. This kind of faith in God, it allows God to be God. And when living by faith, we live with the certainty that he will accomplish his will, whether it involves miraculous intervention or not. I can think of no better example than the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the story, these young men, they've been commanded to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar on pain of death um, by fiery furnace. And here's what they say. They're given a final chance to bow down to worship Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They said, even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. This kind of faith, convinced of the power and the goodness of God, allows us to rest. It allows us to have confidence, to have peace. God's got this. He's able. He's good. We don't have to work up some level of belief for him to act. And he wants our faith just like Jesus did in this passage. He wants us to come to him with our needs and to put our trust in him. And if it helps you to remember, he wants you to get on the plane and to trust him to take you to where he wants you to be. 
when we live in an attitude of trust towards God, we can bring our cares to him, we can ask him for help, and we allow him to work in our lives and in our hearts. It's maybe worth taking a minute to think about something that you need to trust the Lord with. Know that God is just like Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the best picture we have of what God is like. He's compassionate, he's able, he cares for you, he knows you inside and out, and he knows what's best for you. Do you trust him with it? To help you trust him, let's take a few minutes to look at Jesus and to see what he's like. We've looked at these people and their response to Jesus. How does he respond to them? Well, each time Jesus is faced with someone who needs him, he responds with compassion. That's the second theme we see here. The first was faith, and the second is that Jesus is compassionate. Not only that, he is supremely distractible, very easily distracted. Twice in the passage, people interrupt him. He's on his way to heal the ruler's daughter, and he's interrupted by this woman who, who touches his clothes. And he stops, and he notices her. Same with the two blind men following him down the street. He stops, he notices, he sees them. These people were the least in their society. They were the unclean, the unwanted, the outcasts. The ruler's daughter was dead, so she was unclean. And yet Jesus takes her by the hand. The woman who had bled for 12 years, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and an outcast. The blind men, outcasts as well, and likely blamed for their own condition. The attitude would have been that they must have sinned to be struck blind. And the demon-oppressed man, also a social exile, and unable to speak. But Jesus had time for each of them. He wasn't repulsed by their uncleanliness, by the way they looked, by the looks others gave them. He stopped and he restored them. To the little dead girl, he took her hand and she rose as if from sleep. It would have been wonderful to see the sight of her dad giving her a hug, her dad who had had the faith to believe the unthinkable that Jesus could bring her back from the dead. And instead of allowing this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years to quietly slip away again after being healed, Jesus proclaimed her clean in front of the whole crowd. For 12 years, she had been ritually unclean. She'd been unable to enter the temple She'd been unable to make sacrifices to worship with her people. And in a moment, Jesus not only heals her body, but he restores her place in society. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. The blind men were made to see. The demon-oppressed man was freed and able to speak again. And so we see in Matthew 9 that in Jesus' compassion, he focuses on the least in society. And he wants us to do the same. In fact, Jesus has told us that when he returns, he says this in Matthew 9, so I'm jumping forward a little bit, but he's told us that when he returns, he will say to the righteous, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Do we have this kind of compassion? The kind that notices the least of these? Who in your life needs the love of Christ the most? Who needs to be shown that they are loved Perhaps it's a homeless person you pass on the street. Perhaps it's an elderly neighbor who's alone. Perhaps it's a young student who's here without family or someone on the fringe of your community. There are people all around us who are desperate for the love of Christ, people who need compassion, who need some of our time, perhaps some food or a cup of tea. They need the benefit of the doubt. They need someone to treat, to treat them with kindness, to notice them. I remember Ashley, my wife, telling me about her parents when they were working in uh, Pakistan earlier in their career, and they found that they didn't have time for everything. They were constantly being interrupted. They were trying to run a, a hostel for uh, high school-aged boys, and they were always being interrupted with uh, quarreling couples in their community. They were asked to settle family disputes, money issues, injuries, illness. And eventually they realized that not only were all of these other side issues, these interruptions not going to go away, but they were actually important. And they decided to see these interruptions as their ministry rather than as an inconvenience. And that made all the difference. What had been a nuisance before became their focus because our lives are made up of little moments. Jesus calls us to be like him, to be distractible, to be compassionate, to take time for those who need us, who interrupt our days, to seek out and find the least. So take a moment to think of who in your life needs compassion. And if perhaps you're drawing a blank, then perhaps you've become a little too comfortable. It's human nature to want comfort and familiarity, to seek out a friend rather than a stranger, to gravitate to people like yourself. But we see in this passage that Jesus loves the stranger and the outcast. And so we, as his people, have a duty to love everyone because Jesus loves everyone. The church is where anyone can find a home, where the outcasts find community, where the unclean are accepted, where those who are on the fringes are made welcome. We are to be a beacon of light, to hope for the hopeless, where people come and they can see the love of Christ in the church. So it's easy to say all that, but how do we, how do, we do it? And I think there's some helpful verses in verses 36 to 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There are three things here which Jesus did. First, he saw. He opened his eyes. He noticed. He saw people as they really were. And he took time to get to know them and their needs. Through doing this, he was led to compassion. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion is not a feeling that we can manufacture. It's something that, we, that, that comes from meeting people where they are 
seeing them in their need. And third, Jesus was moved to intercession, to pray. He said, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, go as laborers into the harvest. He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that's because God knows exactly what is needed, where it's needed, and who's to do it. God's the one who orchestrates these divine appointments. And it seems to be often in the Bible and in our lives that he puts people in contact with the right people at the right time. It's often the way that God works. A good example is uh, found in Acts 8. It's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. In this, in this account, Philip is asked by an angel to travel along a certain road, and there he bumps into an Ethiopian official coming back from Jerusalem on his chariot, who just happens to be passing on the same road and just happens to be reading a scroll from Isaiah which foreshadows Christ, the passage where it says he was like a sheep to the slaughter. So Peter jumps on board, travels with him on his chariot, and beginning with this passage explains, tells him the good news about Jesus. And so they stop, the eunuch is baptized, and they part ways. That is the Lord of the harvest leading the way. That's him orchestrating the meetings as he wants them to happen. And he still does this. God is working in his harvest to bring people into contact with his people, with us as the church. And he wants to partner with us in, in bringing them to know and love him. He wants us to be laborers in his harvest. God has a job for you. So we too, if we want to follow Jesus' example, we should see, we should open our eyes, see those who need Jesus around us, which will move us to compassion. It'll move us to care for them, for their needs, care to tell them about Jesus, and it'll lead us to pray for them and for the harvest. And when we pray to God, it's dangerous because he moves our hearts and he can move us to act. Those of you who are coming along to Rooted later this evening will hear a little bit more about this. We're looking at the Great Commission, but the job of sharing the good news of the gospel with the world is not finished, not even nearly. There's a group called uh, the Joshua Project, which charts unreached, unreached people groups. Well, it charts reached and unreached people groups around the world. And the st statistics are sobering. Currently, the estimate is that 42% of the world's population is considered unreached. 42%. And by unreached, they mean communities that have less than 2% of people as Christ followers and less than 5% as people who profess any sort of Christian belief. 42% of the world's population unreached. So the job's not done. Jesus wants laborers for his harvest. So perhaps part of opening our eyes to see, part of opening our eyes is to see the need both here in Northern Ireland and around the world. Certainly there's a call to pray, to pray for the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into the harvest. And as you pray, God may move you to get involved in a specific work to give of your time, to give of your money, or to go. The Lord of the harvest knows where you are needed. So pray, and you can trust that he'll show you. And so to finish, and just 
recap a little bit what we've covered this evening. Jesus asks us to have faith, to have an attitude of trust towards him that allows him to work on our behalf. He calls us to get on the plane, to trust him with our lives, to trust that he's powerful, that he's good, that he'll take us where he wants us to be. And like him, we're called to have compassion, to be distractible, to seek out the least. Doing so will open our eyes. It'll move us to care about people. It'll move us to pray that God would work mightily in this world and use us as laborers in his harvest as we proclaim the kingdom like Jesus did. When we look at Jesus, when we look at Jesus' life, uh, we see his life, we see his selfless love, and we see the very heart of God. And it's our privilege to follow after him, to be like him, and to partner with God in bringing the good news of the gospel to the world. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Matthew and for what we could read this evening about Jesus, about the example he gives us of the love and compassion that he showed to those around him who others would ignore, and about the ways in which he loves to give good gifts and to help if we come in faith and in trust to him, Lord. We thank you that um, that same Jesus is at your right hand today, and we can pray to you knowing that you are good, that you love us, that we can trust you. And so we pray, Father, that you would use us. We thank you that you want to include us in this um, great commission of going out into the harvest, working as laborers for you. We thank you that you want to work with us, and so we pray that you would help us to commit to prayer, that we would have a heart for the least of these around us, have a heart for the lost, and that by your spirit, with your guidance, you would help us, help us to be um, a light to those around us. So thank you for this time that we've had together. In Jesus' name, amen.